This is the weekly sermon from Church of the Holy Trinity, a Reformed Episcopal parish of the Anglican Church in North America in Houston, Texas. Please join us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. for Holy Communion, and visit us on the web at holytrinityrec.org. Enjoy the sermon. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our sermon today comes from our gospel lesson, Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. I had a pastor friend of mine tell me one day that Christians have this tendency to eat their own wounded. What he means by that is we go out and we preach the gospel with fervor and we welcome lost people into the church. Problem is, is once they're in, we expect them to be perfect, and then if they sin, sometimes they're not really looked upon with favor anymore. Sometimes the sin is so great that a Christian who may have been the Christian for many years may wound up being shunned and never being able to return even after repentance. It's a harsh reality that we have, and it kind of highlights the fact that when we're in the church for any length of time, we tend to forget that we're sinners as well as the people that come in from the outside, and that we need forgiveness just as much as the people who are new converts. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus talks about this to some degree. And to set the, pa- the kind of the context for the, for the passage we're going to be looking at, it's actually the third of three parables that talks, where Jesus talks about the idea of God going out and rescuing, rescuing the lost. Now, he doesn't really identify who the lost are. In context, if we look at it, he's actually talking about the people of Israel who've wandered from God and his desire for them to come back. But it can also be applied to the gospel and for all those who haven't come in yet and have not become Christian. But as you look at the beginning of chapter 15, it starts out with this. It says, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes had grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus doesn't do an open rebuke. What he does is what he typically does in these situations. He tells a bunch of stories that we know as parables. And since this is the longest one of the few or of the three, uh, I can't really go into depth over the whole parable this morning. But we can get the flow of the story and get Jesus's point. So he starts out saying that there was this man, this rich man, and he had two sons. And then one day, one of his sons, the younger one, comes up and says, Father, give me the share of your property that's coming to me. And the father goes ahead and he divides the property amongst his children. Now, this in modern ears doesn't really sound too devastating. It sounds rather rude. Sounds probably very presumptuous, but in his 
actually very good book on the return of the prodigal son. The author, Henry Nowen, talks about this man that he knew who went to the Middle East and he started going around to different people where at whatever country he was in and he asked, what does this sound like to you when a son comes up to his father and asks for his property? And one of the men that looked at it said, well, that means that son wants his father to die. And if you go back and you look at what it, the whole financial scheme or the economy back in the day, the idea was is that even if a son had taken property, the father was still allowed or legally allowed to have the profits from that money for as long as he lived. It wasn't until death that it came all to the son. So in essence, what the younger son is saying is, Dad, I hope you die quickly. So this isn't just a simple exchange of money. This is something much more deep. And then the son goes out in verse 13. It says, not many days later, the son goes, he gathers his stuff, and out, out he goes to another country. So he's not simply satisfied with having this wealth, he's got to get away from his family. So he goes as far as he can, most likely, but he goes into a far country, it tells us. We don't know where that is. And then he proceeds to squander it in reckless living. So he doesn't really tell us what that looked like, but we could probably take a few guesses. So the problem here is, is that the son, when he gets all this money, he had no desire to build on the wealth, he had no desire to preserve the wealth and to live responsibly. He just goes out and has a party. And then Luke tells us that as he's doing this, he spends everything, and then the next thing you know, there's a famine. And now all of a sudden, this younger son, who thought he had the world by the tail, winds up wondering what is he going to do to survive. He has nothing to leverage against this famine. He can't go out and buy food. He can't go and buy clothes. He probably doesn't even have a roof over his head. So what does he do? He goes out and he asks a friend or a local to hire him and Next thing you know, he's in a field feeding a bunch of pigs. Now, of course, you can guess that when Jesus is talking to his Jewish audience about going out and feeding pigs, this was probably the most repugnant job that you could possibly have as an agricultural uh, person who's like in agriculture. Because pigs were, by the law, unclean. They couldn't eat pork. They weren't even allowed to have pigs in their area. But here they were. And there he was, feeding pigs. And he was so desperate for food, it tells us, that he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs were eating. So these pods were basically 
kind of like pea pods. They were grabbing them off of trees, and this is what they would use to feed the pigs with. And he was so desperate to eat pig food. In verse 17, it tells us he came to himself. He suddenly realized the depth to which he fell, the pain that he caused himself because of his sin. And he says, you know what? My father's servants have more food than they know what to do with, but here I am in the middle of a field with a bunch of pigs wanting to eat what they eat. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to go back, I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to say this. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So in verses 17 through 19, it's a very important part of the story and one that we might overlook, but the boy's heart's changed. He is repenting. He has a change of mind. His conscience has been waked up by his circumstances. He realizes what he's done. And oftentimes this is what God will do to us. He'll let us kind of like out on a leash sometimes, if only to show us that we're sinners and that we need him. And so desperate was this boy, or this young man, to go back. He said, I don't even want to be, I can't even be considered his son anymore. Which, this is a big deal. Because he's basically absolving himself of all the rights that sons had back then. He was giving up his right to any property. He was giving up his right for any privilege that he might have from his father. And he was willing to go back serve him at his table, work out in his fields, if only he could have some food. Then in verses 20 through 24, we have the good part of the story. Right? This is the part of the story we, everybody loves. This is this part of the story that we all yearn for as Christians It's the one of being accepted back into Christ's fold. The one of being sorry for one's sins, confessing it, knowing that our Father in heaven will forgive us. And Jesus paints it as such. He says, while the Son was still a long way off, it says that the Father was watching and waiting. And when he saw his son, he felt compassion on the man. And then he ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. So back then, an old man running along the road to try to meet somebody was considered kind of an undignified action. It pictures this idea of God being willing to accept his, his members back into his fold. It's a picture of the richness of God's grace, of his mercy. 
For many people, and today, if you had somebody who came back into your house who'd been away for a long time, who'd basically done everything possible to offend you, to hurt you, and then he comes back and he says he's sorry, there's a process there, right? We don't always accept people with open arms. And we don't always know the backstory as to why they're back. But with the father, he knew perfectly well what happened, and he accepts his son anyway. But mind you, he accepts him, and I would point to James, chapter 4, verse 6, that if the boy hadn't come back and repented, the father wouldn't have accepted him. Because it says in James that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And this is something that we have to remember, especially when we go out and we talk with people who aren't Christian. Somehow we've gotten this idea that God just forgives everybody automatically. But the story of Scripture always says that God opposes the proud. It's not that he wants to rub our nose in our problems. He wants us to realize that we need him and that we've disobeyed him. And then as the story unfolds, the son comes up and his first words were, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. The father doesn't even let him stop or doesn't even let him finish his sentence about coming to home to be a hired servant. And he says to the servants around him, bring quickly the, ro or the best robe, a ring, and some shoes to put on his feet. There's some significance to this. The robe was a means of distinction of some sort. Probably didn't have any good clothing on his back. In fact, if you look at the painting called The Prodigal Son, it's actually the painting on base that is the object of Henry Nouwen's book. You see this young boy, or this young man, in front of his father, and he's in basically rags, his shoes are falling off, he's dirty, he has a shaved head, he's unkept, and the father's going to bring about a transformation. Puts a robe on him, he gives him a ring, which is a sign of authority, which he probably had before he left. He also had shoes on his feet, or put on his feet. This is a sign that he is a son and not a servant because servants typically didn't wear shoes. And if that, that weren't enough, he says, bring the fattened calf and we're going to have a party because this, my son, was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, if you're a Christian who has been a Christian for any amount of time, this story is precious to us because it talks about God's desire for us to repent, to remain in fellowship with him, to know the love of God, that he understands 
that we're messed up and he loves us anyway. But this isn't the end of the story. This is where we tend to mentally stop and say, isn't everything all grand? Because in verse 25, Jesus kind of throws a monkey wrench into the story. He says, this older son comes in and he's out in the fields and he's probably been working and all of a sudden he hears music and commotion and he goes to a servant and he goes and he says, what is going on? And the servant replies, he says, your brother's come back. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. So you would think that the son might be happy that, the older son at least, would be happy that his younger brother came back. That he, even though he probably doesn't know it just as yet, that he's repented, that he's understood the error of his ways, that he's deeply sorry, and that his father is now happy that his son has returned. But it doesn't, he doesn't do that. It says instead that the man was angry. Now this is a poke at the Pharisees, if you look back to the beginning of the chapter. Because they're out there grumbling, oh, he's out with the wrong people. He's out with tax collectors and sinners. He's not with us. We are the crowd. We are the in people. Why isn't he with us? And this is reflected in the older son's diatribe towards the end of the story. And listen to what he says. He says, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my family. This is the older son trying to justify himself by trying to tell his father how obedient and good he was. And he probably was. But he goes on to say, when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, it's kind of like when your parents are arguing over something you did wrong and your mom goes to your dad and says, that son of yours just ran the car into the fire hydrant. Possession becomes very conditional at that point. It's kind of the same way here. This son of yours spent all of his money on a bunch of prostitutes. And he devoured your property. He did you wrong, and yet you're killing the calf for him. I don't get it. And neither do many of us. You know, I remember a time I was in a Baptist church when I was in high school. Um, my grandfather and I and my brother used to attend. And one year we had this, one of the deacons, he was also the treasurer for the church, got caught stealing funds out of the church treasury. And it was in the papers. It was that big of a story. But yet in church, we never talked about it. There was probably murmurings. There was probably gospel or gossip about it. But we never, at least I never knew what happened to the, to the gentleman. And he was a really good man. Was it that he was shunned? I don't know. Was it because, was he just told to go to another church because his sin was too grievous? I don't know. 
But it's funny that when we have a son like this or somebody in the body of Christ that does sin and what we would consider sinning big, they tend to disappear. And some of it's shame, and I understand that. But there is no joy if there's repentance. There's probably not even a chance to express repentance. And that's what's going on with the Pharisees. They don't want to hear about bad people turning to God. They don't understand why Jesus, who's a rabbi, is even bothering to go to these people and why they love him so much. And he says, you killed the fattened calf for the guy. I don't get it. And he says to his son, and he doesn't condemn him, which is interesting. He says, you're always with me, son. And he goes, all that is mine, it is yours. So if you look back into the Old Testament, the, older, the oldest son got what we call the double portion of a, of a family's property. All right? And that's because one day when his father died, he was to take over the reins of leadership for the, for the clan. And this is probably what the father's getting at. He says, all that I have is yours. But he says, it was fitting for me to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now obviously here we're not talking about physical death or the fact that he lost his bearings when he was walking out in town one day. He had a relational breakdown with his father. There was sin in the middle that was preventing communion with each other. But he said, this has changed. He's alive now. He's back with me. The relationship has been repaired. He was lost. He didn't have his bearings. He wanted to do his own thing rather than the best thing. But now he's found. He understood the error of his ways. And this is what the Pharisees didn't get. Now, there's a whole history as to why the Pharisees started to begin with. But basically, they formed in the intertestamental period, and they were basically a group who were fighting against idolatry. If you remember when the people were taken into Babylon... The reason they were, they were taken there is because God was punishing them for their idolatry, their desire to worship anything that moved or didn't move except the living God. And the Pharisees, when they formed, their whole idea was, was to strictly obey the law so this, this type of, this thing wouldn't happen again, this expulsion from the land. They strive to live pure. But in that, they lost focus of the many places in their own scripture that said that God desires mercy more than sacrifice. That, yes, there is the law, but there's also the heart, which is in concert with the law. There's forgiveness. There's repentance. There's bringing the lost back into the house of God. 
So the parable shows us, one, God's mercy towards the repentant sinner is wide, it's gracious, it's beautiful. It is generous. It's open to anyone who repents and turns to God. He doesn't refuse people who turn to him through his son Christ. And this is what we all love about the Christian faith. History is replete with people who we probably would have rather seen dead than come to Christ. John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, was a slave trader. We have a man called Jeffrey Dahmer, who if you remember him from many years, a couple years, 20 years ago, was a gruesome serial killer. And I won't even get into the details of what he did. He came to Christ in prison. And these are the type of people that, on the other side, this is something we want to be wary of. We don't want to be the older brother. We don't want to forget that we're sinners too. We don't want to forget that God's mercy doesn't apply to just us because we're wonderful, because we aren't, but we're loved because of Christ, because as we continue, we repent. We live a life of repentance. We live a life of communion with God. And other people get to join too, if they only do the same thing. This is the point of the older brother. This is what you look like, Pharisees. That's what Jesus was saying. The grace of God might be good enough for you, you're saying, but it's not good enough for anybody else. They fail to realize that they're broken people too. As we think and as we go, remember that our God's grace is generous towards us, but it's also generous towards anyone who repents. That's the story of the parable. That's the meaning that Jesus wanted to get through. It's the story for us as well. God's grace is gracious. It is generous. Amen.